We're on our third week now into the book of Hebrews, starting this new work. As I mentioned last week, we took a look at seven utterances about the Son of God as we took the first three verses of this chapter one and broke them down uh, line by line, precept upon precept. And it became obvious to us in our study last week and, and obvious to anyone reading that the previous passage from this morning, last week's passage, the writer was concerned with proving and establishing of the superiority of Jesus Christ over the prophets. It becomes ultimately clear now in this next section, in verses 4 through 14, that the writer is now concerned with proving and establishing the superiority of Jesus Christ over angels. Now, the very fact that he is concerned enough to do this in the writing proves uh, that the place angels had in the mind of the Hebrew Jewish individual at the time of this writing was a very uh, high place. As I mentioned last week, it was equally high toward the prophets when they, they assumed, according to Amos's verse, that God did nothing without talking to the prophets. Well, angels had and held an equally high estate in the mind of the Jew at the time of this writing because most uh, Orthodox Jews, even those who had come over to Christianity, still with their anchor in the, the holds of Judaism, still felt a distance from God. Call that the transcendence. They still felt there was this large gulf between them and God. Under the uh, systems of the law, that distance could only be removed at the moment of sacrifice by the priest at the altar on a given moment when you had come. And that particular sin or uh, devotion or whatever it was the worshiper was offering, for, for a brief moment, seemed like, okay, their closeness was restored, but it, it, a nanosecond, if you will, the moment the worshiper was done with that sacrifice and began to go on with his life, this feeling of distance between them and God would return. It was chronic in the life of many of those who practiced Judaism, and it remained still evident in the life of uh, Jews during the time of this writing, both those who had come over to the Christian faith and those who still held clearly to Judaism itself. 
in their minds, the angels were the intermediary between God and them. In their minds, the angel, or angels, plural, bridged the gulf between God and man. In their minds, angels spoke for God to man, and in their minds, angels carried the prayers of mankind up to the throne of God. Now, before we perhaps shake a metaphorical stick at that and say, well, well, they should have known better or, you know, who would ever do that? Time out. Because as we move fast forward through human history, we can see that in some ways not much has changed. There are countless books on angels that flood our libraries and many, many movies about angels that have filled the theaters because in our Western culture, at least, we're somewhat uh, intrigued by the thought of angels. Go all the way back to 1942, the film, I Married an Angel. 1946, the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life with Clarence, who needs to come down and, you know, help out George Bailey. 2000, we had angels out in the outfield. 2014, heaven is real. 2017, the shack. 1990, almost an angel. 63 films since 1942 and 18 films that highlight, uh, highlight the fallen angel category. It's called angelology or the study of angels. And why is it? It's because sometimes humanity is more prone to elevate slash worship the angelic host than they are to elevate slash worship God. And angel worship is not to take place. You remember what Paul said to his letter in the, to the Colossians, chapter 2.18. He said, do not let anyone disqualify you insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by human way of thinking. The worship of angels was taking place at the time of the writing of Hebrews. And you remember, of course, that many of these that would worship or elevate angels to a, an unbiblical level would have visions. Oh, I, I saw an angel and the angel came down to me and the angel said, and yet... Visions do not qualify worshiping an angel. Remember what happened to John in the book of Revelation. He has a vision I'll share with you in just a moment. And he's, he's even told not to worship uh, the angel. 
Paul put it this way. He said in Galatians 1, 8, and 9, he said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the, uh, what we have proclaimed to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat. Oh my goodness. Paul knew it important enough to say it twice. If anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let that one be accursed. In John's revelation, you remember, two times at the announcement, first of all, of the marriage supper of the Lamb, an angel came and made this announcement and in Revelation 19, we find John writing, he says, I fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But he said, the angel said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Love it. And finally, when the angel, the messenger of the Lord, came and announced that the end of all things is coming. And then Jesus, he repeats Jesus' words about, Behold, I am coming quickly. John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And once again, the angel says, you must not do that. Worship God. Thus, the writer of Hebrews is seeking to address the error that was taking place during its time. And I would see no reason why under the presence of the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't be necessary for Christians in the church to know rightly what the right place of angels is, that they exist, but they are not to be worshipped. They are not the intermediary between God and man. There is one man between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, we're told. They are not the gulf between God and man. Job tells us that there, there is one who puts his hand on man and his hand on God. They do not speak for God to man because we were told just at the first few words of Hebrews that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And finally, they do not carry your prayers, my prayers, the prayer chain prayers or any prayers to the throne of God, there is one who does that, and that is Christ Jesus himself who stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for us even now. So I draw your attention back to verse 4 this morning as the writer now starts to reinforce the superiority of Jesus Christ over angels when we had read in the first three verses that he, he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance 
obtained a more excellent name than they. So our text tells us that he has become so much better than the angels. It is interesting in the book of Hebrews, this word better is used 13 times of the 19 times that it is in the whole of the New Testament. 13 of the 19 times that this Greek word better comes to us in all of the New Testament, 13 of those are here in the book of Hebrews. Why? Well, first of all, he has obtained a better, more excellent name, becomes so much better than they, better than angels. In verse 4, he is also the one who gives us better things. Chapter 6, verse 9, he's a better person than Abraham or the fathers. Chapter 7, verse 7, he brings a better hope. Chapter 7, verse 19, he brings a better covenant. Chapter 7, verse 22, he brings Better promises, chapter 8, verse 6. A better sacrifice, chapter 9, verse 23. A better possession, chapter 10, verse 34. A better country, chapter 11, verse 16. A better resurrection, chapter 11, verse 35. And better things, again, in 1224. No wonder. Better than the angels. And the writer says he has now become. What does it mean that he becomes? I'd like you to keep your place in chapter 1 there and turn with me to chapter 10. Turn to the right a few pages. Chapter 10. Because the text tells us that having become... In its original language, it does mean that there is a, a process of something that has happened. And what we do know is that the Son of God in his humanity had a body which his Father prepared for him. Look at verse 5. It says, Therefore, when he came into this world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. So the Father prepared a specific body for the incarnation. God incarnate, fully God yet fully man. One commentator says, don't even try and fully understand it because we can't. We embrace it. We believe it because it's a mystery not to be fully comprehended. The father gives the son a body, but that body was created a little lower than the angels. If I read to you verse 9 of chapter 2, we read... But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So it follows then that 
in his incarnation, we are told that he was made perfect through sufferings. And I'm going to walk you backwards. You're in chapter 10. Turn to the left now to chapter 7, verse 28. Chapter 7, verse 28. Which says, For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been, note the word, perfected forever. Turn to the left again to chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9, we read, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We'll deal more with that when we're in chapter 2. But again, there it is. And having been perfected. Finally, turn to the left one more time to chapter 2. And I read verse 9. Let's read verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10, which says, For it was... Are are you all there? Because this is an important one. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So here's the summary. Having become trial after trial, testing after testing, which ultimately led to him in the garden of Gethsemane saying to the father, father, if there be, if it be possible, please allow this cup to pass from me. Speaking of the death that is about to occur on the cross. Please, father, if there's any other way than me Placing myself on that cross to redeem mankind from its lost condition. And we today, in hindsight, know what the Father's answer was. But before the answer, Jesus makes the statement, nevertheless, not my will, right, but thy will be done. And so testing after testing, trial after trial, as we're told in Philippians that he emptied himself and became obedient even unto death upon the cross. At which point God divinely resurrected him. We just celebrated Resurrection Sunday a handful of weeks ago. God resurrects him. Because of who he is, what he has done, that he is God incarnate, that he has been faithful, obedient to the will of the Father, even unto death, sinless from beginning until all all eternity. Always perfect and yet as the Son of Man, made perfect through sufferings. At which point? 
he inherits and obtains a more excellent name than the angels. I believe that to be extremely important for us to wrap ourselves around in case you know someone who is enthralled by angels, in case you yourself maybe at one time sought to elevate angels and it's all about the angels and I've had visions and it's angels and it's not. It's, it's about Jesus, which is what he's trying to reinforce. And maybe I'm not speaking to anybody, but perhaps there's someone out there that has been enthralled by the idea of angels even at this moment. Now, we are told that he obtained a more excellent name than they. There are a few handful of names in scripture for the angels. Maybe you know some of them. Raphael, Ariel, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And yet, we do know according, accordingly that the author is endeavoring to bring an attention not to the angels, but to Christ, to his superiority over the angels. If you're taking note, the references that he gives us now in verses 5 and forward, uh, Psalm 2, verse 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14, Psalm 97, 7, Psalm 104, 4, Psalm 45, 7 and 8, Psalm 102, 6 and 7, and Psalm 110, verse 1. And so these references come from there, from those portions of Scripture that the author sees as messianic. We read verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Uh, the answer, he never said that to any of the angels. Uh, we also see in verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, verse 7, and the angels of God, he's, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Back to verse 6 for a minute, we have uh, an interesting verse that Unitarians, um, cult denominations have used that verse in Scripture to try to verify that Jesus Christ is a created being. And so what we have here is a, an understanding and a reference that he is not. So am I seeing an emergency vehicle out in the fire lane? Yes. What's going on? Sherry Wynn? Does she have trouble with her heart? We don't know. There's, there's a lot of people out there right now. Is she okay, Scott? I wanted to return before anyone read into it, but um, it looks like uh, everything's getting handled. Okay. Let's, uh, let's pray for her right now, shall we? Father, we want to just lift your servant Sherry to you. We want to pray for those 
first responders as well that are caring for her. God, we know that you hold her in your hands. And we know that you operate through the care and the skill of those who have been trained and are there doing what they do best. We pray, Lord, that you would be ever so present near her, next to her, comforting her, strengthening her, holding her, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we'll appreciate an update when we can get one. So, we again are faced with uh, the word firstborn being applied to Jesus. And yet, uh, there are other times when he is referred to as firstborn. Matthew chapter 1, verse 25 Luke chapter 2, verse 7, talks about uh, Mary bringing her firstborn son into the world. Colossians 1.15, again, reinforces him as the firstborn over creation. I'll read it. Colossians 1.15 and 16, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So the uh, adversarial organizations, cult organizations that would point to this verse and say, see, Jesus is a created being. No, he's not. Scripture does not reinforce that. He is divine. He is the Son of God. He became incarnate as the Son of Man, but he is not a created being. In verse 6, we see that um, the command is for all of the angels to worship him, to worship Jesus. Because of the angels in verse 7, a quotation from Psalm 104.4, God makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Perhaps you've looked up the word angel before. It can and does often render out, translate out messenger. And so in that way, angels were messengers, servants, ministering, as we read at the end of this passage about them ministering uh, to those who will inherit salvation. Moving on, take us to verse 8 and 9. We read that uh, of Jesus, he says, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Isn't this amazing? The text 
holding to an inerrant belief of Scripture that it is infallible, inerrant, eternal, authored by the very person of God the Father himself, although penned by men who were prompted by the Holy Spirit, we have God the Father calling God the Son God. Isn't that amazing? But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 9, therefore God, your God, has anointed you the oil of gladness more than your companions. Just trying to wrap your my head around that. Maybe it's easy for you, but for me, I just like, wow. Okay. As, the, as God incarnate, as the Son of Man, flesh and blood, bone, sinew, emotion, thinking capability, physical capability, the same very things that we have, the text tells us that he acknowledged God, the Father. And so, yes, God, your God, has anointed you, anointed you with gladness more than your companions. Amazing. Verses 10 through 12, we see... Uh, that you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will allow, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. Quote from Psalm 102. Here the author reminds the reader that as the creator of all things were created by him and for him and through him, as the creator, he laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens were the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. In other words, there is a promise of a new heaven and a new earth but this earth as we know it and this heaven as we know it is going to change. How will they change? The glimpse that we have is that they will grow old. They will perish. Verse 11, they will grow old. Second part of verse 11, like a garment. And how many of you have old clothes in your closet? You know what it's like to have that old favorite pair of jeans or that old shirt. You just... Don't want to get rid of it because it, it fits you so good. But, man, the threads are coming out. The stuff is just, like, falling apart. If, you know, if, if you're not careful, it's just going to disintegrate while you're wearing it one day. And that's the promise of Scripture about this earth and this heaven that we know. That they are growing old, and one day they will simply disappear like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed, metamorphosed. We're told in the book of Corinthians that 
one day, all things will change. He says, but your years will not fail. You are the same. They will change, but you are the same. It is an anchor to me, and I trust and hope that it is an anchor to you this morning, those of you who are watching at home, that in an ever-changing world, there is one thing, one person that remains the same. And that is Jesus. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, you know the passage, today and forever. And the fact that we have him to hold on to, an anchor that though the world around us may change, though we are ever changing, he remains the same. That is an anchor for me. I hope and trust that it is an anchor for you as well this morning. Winding down here to verse 13 and 14, which we read. um, He said... To which of the angels did he ever, had he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool? And the answer again is he never said that to any of the angels. And it is uh, remarkable to notice that this scripture indicates God is inviting the son to sit at his right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, you know what it's like. I have one at home, a, a, an ottoman or whatever you call that. I put my feet on it. There will come a day when Christ himself will place his feet on every adversary of God. In fact, the main adversary of God, he will crush Satan himself. And so until that day, the Father is saying, just sit right here. Because one day I will... I will give you the green light and and that process will begin and with your return to earth and I'll be setting it in place to where you will reign for a thousand years and even he will come back, you know, for a brief moment in time, but I'm going to eventually put him completely under your feet. Until then, just sit right here. And to no other, no other One, did he ever say that? No angel, certainly. Close with this story. One commentator writes, it isn't good to be too comfortable in the presence of majesty. There there is a story of a man named Lair who was hired by Queen Victoria for art lessons. Things went well, and Lair started to feel quite at home in the palace. He enjoyed standing in front of the fire, leaning on the hearth, warming himself in in a relaxed manner. But every time he did, the queen's attendants would invite him to come look at something else or move to a different position, to another side of the room, making him leave that relaxed posture. No one explained to him But after a while, he got the idea. Good manners said it was wrong for a subject 
to have such a relaxed attitude in the presence of their queen. Jesus is not a subject. He is God himself. And the father says, come sit right here. The presence of majesty to which we, as his subjects, should remember, yes, there's a fond relationship going up, going on. But we're to be careful not to become too relaxed in that relationship. That we would think we can swanker into the presence of God or swanker through life without any recognition of the fact that he gave his life to redeem us. Better things. Better than the angels, as we said. Better, a better covenant. A better promises. Better sacrifice, a better possession, a better country. A better resurrection. All in all, better things. I hope that is convincing enough this morning for us to realize that yes angels are real they do minister to those who will inherit salvation but our focus is never to be them it's to be upon Jesus will you close with me with a word of prayer Lord, once again this morning, we thank you for your word and simply ask again that you watch over each and every one of our lives, particularly that which is going on with our sister right now. And that we here can know the peace of God because you've promised us your peace sometimes our heart gets hard we ask you again today to just keep it soft because we really do want all that you have for us Lord we ask you to have your way today and in the balance of this week you know what everyone here is facing. You know what everyone is enjoying. You know what everyone else is fearful about. Soften our heart, oh God, to receive all that you have for us. And we will give you the praise because you know, we know you are worthy.